You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, would invite you to find a copy of God's Word. There is a Bible underneath the chairs around. There are two kinds. There's a brown one and there's a kind of a reddish burgundy one. The reddish burgundy one has slightly larger font, so I don't know if it uh, makes that big of a difference or not, but there are two different kinds there. If you don't have a Bible of your own, would love for you to turn to Genesis chapter 40. That's where we'll start. We'll do 40 and 41 today. In the red, kind of burgundy colored Bibles, it's page 41. In the brown Bibles, I think both large and small, it's page 33. You can just have that open. It'd be good for you to follow along from God's word. Um, We love a good underdog story. Um, Right now, the uh, NCAA basketball tournament is going on. I don't know if any of you watched that, but there's actually a 15 seed that made it to the Sweet 16, which is pretty cool to see an underdog win two games in a row and make it up the up the up the chain. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen the the, or heard of the Kurt Warner video or uh, movie that came out of the man who was a grocery store stalker and then all of a sudden. Uh, becomes MVP of the Super Bowl. Uh, we can think of all kinds of movies and stories where you've got this underdog, this this uh, the forgotten one becomes the the hero of the story, and that's uh, that that really is at the heart of our message today, Genesis 40 and 41. Uh, the where we left things last week is that Joseph is in a prison, and Joseph is uh, one of the sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel by God. And Jacob is the carrier of the promise, the promise made to Abraham that that through his family, there would be a blessing to all nations, that redemption would come, there would be land and seed and blessing, and God would work through this one family, this family of Abraham, to bring about the redemption of the whole world. Well, that promise from Abraham went to Isaac, and then from Isaac to his son Jacob, and now Jacob has all of these sons. And now he is becoming a nation. He's got 12 sons. His name is Israel now. And you've got the 12 tribes of Israel that are in these 12 sons. And uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite because he uh, is the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob has two wives and two concubines. And they're the ones that give him the 12 sons. But he has a favorite wife, which creates all kind of drama in the family. And then he's got a favorite son, which is the son of his favorite wife. Uh, Joseph, and that creates all kinds of drama in the story as well. In fact, uh, before we get to chapter 40, it'd be good to look at chapter 37. Uh, So if you want to just flip a a couple pages over, I want to remind you of the tension that this family has been going through. So Joseph is the favorite son. He's been given a coat by his father, which means that he's kind of second in command. He is the preferred son of his father. Uh, The other sons have to work, but Joseph gets to kind of oversee their work. And that creates tension. And then Joseph all of a sudden has these two pretty strange dreams. So Genesis 37, 5 through 11, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to, uh, I'm sorry, or, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. As if things couldn't get worse for Joseph, he dreams another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the saying in mind. Okay? So he's 17 years old at this time, and then he's sent to go check on his brothers, and his brothers decide that they are going to sell him. At first they want to kill him, but then they decide not to. They sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then take him to Egypt, and he's sold. So they sell him off into slavery, and they go back to their father and pretend that he's dead and totally grieve their father and, and totally uh, sell him out for 20 pieces of silver. Well, Joseph ends up rising to power in Potiphar's house. Potiphar goes and buys Joseph. He's a household slave, and, uh, and he rises to power until all of a sudden uh, he's second in command of Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's a pretty important official. He's the captain of the king's guard, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. He's like head of the uh, head of security for Pharaoh. And then Potiphar's wife uh, tries to seduce him. He doesn't go along with it. She falsely accuses him of abusing her, and then he gets thrown in jail. And so things are just getting going from bad to worse in Joseph's life. But Joseph just continues to trust in God continues to try to do the right thing, even when it doesn't work out for him, continues to be a man of integrity everywhere he goes. And so that's where we're at now. He's in jail. He's in uh, Pharaoh's prison. And we had the final word at the end of chapter 39, where it said the Lord was with him and the Lord prospered him. And he rose in prominence even in, within the prison to where the prison, the, the captain of the guard actually puts the whole jail, so to speak, in fair in, in Joseph's stead. So now <laughs> Joseph is kind of managing the prison as a prisoner himself. So that's where we're at. He's in the lowest of the lows. He's a foreign slave in a foreign land. He's the only worshiper of God that he knows. And, uh, and he's falsely accused of things that he didn't do. His integrity actually is why he's in jail. And so now we're going to see this meteoric rise, uh, Joseph's rise from prison to palace. So one of the coolest stories in the whole Bible, Genesis 40 and 41. We're going to break our time together here into three parts. Um, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, which is the whole chapter, we will see Joseph interprets two servants' dreams and then is forgotten. Okay? So my points are actually just descriptions of the chapter. And then, chapter 41, verses 1 through 36, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's two dreams and is promoted. And then, at the end of chapter 41, Joseph implements a brilliant plan and saves the world. So let me just go ahead and read all of chapter 40, and then we'll make some comments on the way through, and we'll just, we'll just break this up into parts. So let's look at chapter 40. If you've got God's word open in front of you, it'd be good for you to follow along. So chapter 40, verses 1 through 23, Joseph interprets two servants' dreams and then is forgotten. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. 
So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As, it, as soon as it budded, the blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and will restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand and he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. All right, what a story. Tremendous drama. Joseph's in prison, and these two guys join him. So we have a fortunate encounter. This is, this is, this is a big deal. Joseph's going to get some people who are pretty prominent, have Pharaoh's ear. Uh, unfortunately, they uh, are in jail because they've fallen out of favor. Potentially, there's been some sort of assassination plot on Pharaoh. And there may be related to food, because the baker is in charge of preparing the food for the cupbearer and then or for the for Pharaoh, and then the cupbearer is supposed to be sort of the guard. He's supposed to be the one that kind of drinks the juice. Okay, it's not poisoned. He didn't die, therefore it's safe for Pharaoh. And the cupbearer becomes a bit of a counselor. These are two of the most trusted members of Pharaoh's cabinet. And somehow it seems like there's been some sort of attempt on his life. And maybe these two guys, as they're trying to figure out who brought this plot to try to kill Pharaoh, both of these guys are suspects. Both of them maybe have been in on this assassination plot. So they're both put into custody. And it says for some time, which means it could be even years, perhaps months for sure, but maybe even years. And it just so happens that they're put under the care of Joseph. They're put under the care of Joseph, which is quite the coincidence, although we see that it's God's hand the whole time, that these two prominent officials are brought into contact with Joseph, and Joseph cares very well for them. Um, now, it's interesting, they're put into custody by, custody by the captain of the guard. Now, do you remember who the captain of the guard was in chapter 39? Potiphar. So it's possible that Potiphar is actually still interacting with Joseph here. And that he still has a regard for Joseph, even while he's the one that threw him in prison. It's possible. We don't have that his name specifically here, but it's sort of interesting that that same title, the captain of the God guard, Potiphar, is also the one who is now kind of has him in this honored position and puts him in, in charge of these really important officials who have fallen out of favor with Pharaoh. We see that Joseph continues to be a man of character. He's concerned about the well-being of others, right? They have a bad dream, 
and he notices as he's caring for them, as he's overseeing them, he notices that they're not doing well, and then he asks about them. So Joseph, even in his own affliction, even though he's unjustly in prison, he's still caring for the well-being of others and even cares about how they're doing. He notices that their face is downcast. And isn't it interesting now that we have dreams? The whole reason that Joseph is in the situation that he's in is because he had two dreams. And he told them to his brothers, and his brothers got mad. And then, you know, so, so, so dreams. Dreams now become a pretty big part of what Joseph's ministry is about. The thing that brought him the most pain and difficulty, which was these dreams that he shared, is now going to be a mechanism by which God uses him um, uh, to, uh, to bring this interpretation to others. One commentator puts it this way, just describing the importance of dreams in Egyptian culture. Uh, a guy named Geeky, which is a good name for a Bible commentator, Mr. Geeky. Dreams were regarded as sent by the, son, by the god Toth. And it was so great a matter to obtain them that recipes still exist from ancient Egypt, uh, exactly how you can get dreams, how they can be secured. It was natural, therefore, for the two disgraced officials that they should be excited to find out the meaning of a divine dream, but a little bit discouraging because they're cut off from the officials. They're cut off from the magic books. They're cut off from the magicians who could then interpret it. So while it's exciting to get this, what seems to be a divine communication, they don't have access to the palace officials, the palace magicians, to be able to get an interpretation. So that's why dreams are such a big deal to both the Egyptians and, interestingly, the Babylonians later. Um, and so Joseph comes up and he says, well, if it's a divine dream, then it must come from the one true God. He says in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. So it's not the gods of Egypt that you should be looking for. They're not the source of this dream, nor are they the ones to interpret it, but God. So Joseph takes the opportunity to speak of his God, to speak of his God and that his God is God. And he gives credit to the fact that God, if he is communicating with you, he also intends for you to know what he is communicating. So the interpretation belongs to God. It's almost like Joseph is saying that if you want to know the meaning of a painting or you want to know the meaning of a story, you should talk to the author. So likewise, if you want to know the meaning of this dream, we should consult the author. And then he says, why don't you tell them to me? Joseph doesn't put any confidence in himself to be an interpreter. But he does have the confidence that because he walks with God, that perhaps he can help make some sense of this, right? So the credit is all going to God, but Joseph has the kind of confidence in his God that he might be a mechanism by which God might use him. So the chief cupbearer tells his dream, and hey, it's good news. There is three days, and then there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be forgiveness. Whatever you've done, the king, Pharaoh, will forgive you. He will forgive your part that you played in this offense, and he is going to restore you to service. Joseph then pleads with the cupbearer for him to advocate for justice before Pharaoh. And he gives just a real short retelling of like the injustices that he's experienced. I've been sold into slavery unjustly by my brothers. I've been brought down here and now I've been thrown in prison under a false accusation. Would you please use your position to talk to Pharaoh in order that we might right an injustice that's been done to me? I'm wrongly imprisoned. Would you advocate on my behalf? And... And that's the request there under happy prediction. Then we get a horrible prediction. The chief baker, now feeling pretty good about, oh, well, that turned out good for him. Let me tell him my dream. Except his dream doesn't turn out quite as well. He's got this vision of, of uh, carrying bread on his head. You've seen kind of ancient, you know, ancient peoples that carried stuff on their heads. I don't carry stuff on my head. 
but they did, and the birds were eating the bread out of it, which is like, it's being robbed, it's being taken, it's being torn apart. So his service to the king is going to be rejected. And you got this funny play on words, like the, uh, the, the king will lift your head for the cupbearer and restore you to service. He'll kind of lift your eyes, he'll restore you to honor, and then I'll lift the head of the baker from you, <laughs> which is a really kind of mean way to say it. Um, and so he's, there's this condemnation. So the Pharaoh will acquit and forgive the cupbearer, but he will hold accountable and bring to judgment and justice the, uh, the baker. We don't get any other details other than that. We have to kind of speculate on how that came about, but Pharaoh does it on his birthday. What a fun party, a wild and crazy party. Um, it's possible that this might not be Pharaoh's birthday. Sometimes they celebrated your coronation day as a king, um, that that was sort of seen as the birth of this new god, as the, as the man, you know, because the Pharaoh was seen as sort of a god uh, figure. So this could be either his literal birthday or it could be just his coronation day. But there's this big party annually. And you know what would be fun is let's go ahead and bring these two criminals out. He's going to forgive and restore one. He's going to condemn and execute the other. Um, the, interestingly, the only other birthday party that's in the Bible is Herod's, and John the Baptist gets his head removed from him too. So I don't know. Birthday parties should be suspect. If you get invited to a birthday party, just be careful, just, especially if you've wronged that person. It might work out. It might not work out. So it's just a fascinating detail there. So the prediction comes true exactly as Joseph uh, explains. It was exactly three days. They were exactly restored, and, um, and then we get this frustrating outcome. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So again, circumstances again work against Joseph. He does the right thing, and it doesn't work out. So he's had two dreams in chapter 37. Now two dreams have come through these two servants, and his situation hasn't changed at all. Which brings us then to chapter 41. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's two dreams and is promoted. So here we go. Verse 41, chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Now that's weird. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all his magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told his dreams... But there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we were told, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, just as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin and ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. And when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind and sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty, blighted, empty, I'm sorry, the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the, plant, the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will sure, shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased, oh, I'm sorry, we'll stop there. Verse 36. Okay, so we've got a strange night. We've got another strange night, which again parallels two dreams by Joseph in chapter 37. Two dreams by two different people in prison. Now two dreams with Pharaoh. There's a pattern being set up here. So we have another strange night by Pharaoh. Uh, the people of the ancient Near East typically viewed kings as chosen representatives of the gods or gods themselves. So dreams are a big deal, like we talked about before, but particularly when kings and pharaohs have dreams, it is a big deal. And Pharaoh begins to freak out. He begins to gather around his musicians, get out the books. Has there ever been a dream like this before? And his magicians are just at a total loss. No matter how much they try to plead with their gods, no matter how much wisdom, no matter how much sorcery they do, they cannot come up with even a possible interpretation. They can't even make something up. They're just so inept at being able to decode what God's message is here. The cows and the grain in the dreams really represent the two key components of Egypt's prosperity. They're two staples of food, cows and grain. They all come up out of the Nile. The Nile was really the source of, futil of fertility within the nation of Egypt. So it's not surprising that they would have uh, great success that comes up out of the Nile, the source of their fertility. Actually, a god that they assume 
he's a God themselves, except that God's going to fail. It's going to provide for them, but then not be able to provide for them. So you see the limit, the limitedness of the officials, of the gods of Egypt. They are being overrun. They are being um, shown for what they are by God through a dream. One commentator put it this way, the Egyptians and the Chaldeans, which interestingly, the two dream interpreters, Joseph and Daniel in the Bible, <laughs> are both in these cultures that really highly value dreams, and God just uses that as a mechanism for his grace and, um, and judgment on those nations. They were foremost in cultivating this branch of knowledge. They, devoted, they developed the explanation of dreams into a complete science. The interpreter of dreams was held in the most distinguished honor, so if you can interpret dreams, then you were the most trusted of all the advisors. They were regarded as being favored in the highest order of wisdom, and even with divine inspiration. They surrounded the throne of the king, accompanied the expedition of the general, and often exercised a decisive influence in the most important deliberations. If you can interpret the king's dreams, then you are, you in a sense, sort of have your hands on the controls of the whole nation. Here we see that the wisdom of the wise and even the gods of Pharaoh have, fall, have, have failed. They are not sovereign. Pharaoh, who's supposed to lead this great nation, can't even figure out his own dreams. So you see God all of a sudden humbling the greatness of the people and going to use what is humble. He's going to use the lowest person in the jail, the foreigner. He's going to bring him to prominence so that God might use the humble to shame the strong. Uh, we have the cupbearer who says, I remember my offenses today. He hears about the dreams, and he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about a guy. I kind of wonder, what exactly is his offenses here? Is it that he remembers his offenses against Pharaoh? Maybe. Or is it that his offense of forgetting Joseph? It might be that one. It might be him forgetting to keep his word to Joseph. Now, I kind of wonder if the cupbearer isn't like, hey, I just got promoted. I barely escaped death. I'm not bringing up the Hebrew slave. I kind of wonder if he maybe on purpose forgot. I don't know. But now the kingdom is in, in turmoil. The, the Pharaoh is freaking out. And so now the cupbearer goes, now might be the time to play <laughs> my friend in prison card, right? So I wonder if this isn't a little bit of clever remembering by the cupbearer. So he brings up Joseph. And what's interesting is he doesn't remember Joseph's name. He's just a young Hebrew. He's totally forgotten about the guy. All I remember is his ethnicity. I remember that he was there, that he worked for this guy. And he, he talks about he can interpret de dreams. So all of Joseph's talk about God is the one who interprets dreams is, was not remembered by the cupbearer. He's putting all of his hope in, this, in Joseph himself. He credits Joseph with having this kind of divine uh, ability. And so we get the summons. He comes, and then we get a little bit of an explanation that Joseph has to clean himself up. If you're coming from jail and you're going to come stand before the king, you should probably shower first. So he showers and shaves. The Egyptians don't do facial hair. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but all the other Middle Eastern people do. So Joseph gets shaved up so that he's appropriate to come before him, gets dressed up to come in. And it's fascinating that uh, the credit is given to Joseph. Joseph, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph goes, nope, I can't. I can't interpret dreams, but God can. So he immediately, standing before Pharaoh, the biggest moment of his entire life at this royal summons, he speaks of God. He speaks of what God can do, not himself. He's always just giving glory to God, making himself small, making God great, and yet he's willing to take on this dream challenge. Tell it to me. So here we go. God's messenger is in place. We get a repeat, almost, uh, almost the exact same recounting of the story in verses 17 through 24. And then we get Joseph's explanation. There's two dreams. They are from God. 
You were right to take them seriously. You were right to be unnerved by them. They are from God. They're confirmed by the Lord. It's almost like there's two witnesses, right? Later on, you can't convict anyone but on two witnesses. So here it is. God is going to give you two witnesses, two dreams back to back to get your attention. They both mean the same thing. God's not communicating two messages. He's communicating one. God uses this Hebrew slave to humble Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. This lowly slave who's pointing to God with great courage is bringing bringing down the gods and the self-sufficiency of Pharaoh. He says, here's what God's going to do. God is going to bring seven years of extraordinary blessing. You're just going to have prosperity coming out your ears. Like you're just going to have it everywhere. It's going to be prosperity like you've never seen before for seven years. But following that is going to be seven years of the most dreadful famine that you have ever experienced. It's going to be devastatingly bad. In fact, the, the corn is cannibalistic, right? <laughs> it's eating the other corn. These cows are eating the other cows. This, this gruesome, weird, like corn doesn't eat other corn. Cows don't eat other cows. Like this is going to be so remarkably horrible that all of the prosperity is going to be overwhelmed by all of the devastating famine that is happening. And that's in chapter 20, or verses 25 through 31. And then he gives some counsel to Pharaoh. He says this, he says, get the right guy to oversee a plan. And here's the plan that I would suggest to you, Pharaoh. I would, I would suggest that you gather in the years of plenty twice as much, maybe even more and store it up for seven years. The people will think you're crazy. They will think you're crazy, but do it anyway. And then when the famine hits, you'll have the supply. There will be enough supply for all 14 years, but knowing what's about to come, you're going to have to take wise action. So uh, the three parts of the plan, get the right guy to oversee the plan. Two, give him a good team to work with. Give him some overseers who, who can help him execute this plan across the country. And then three, gather up the surplus. Store it up in cities so that it's easy to access. In a sense, create a welfare system, right? <laughs> to some extent. Raise taxes, gather it up, and then have it available for later. Now, that's not necessarily what we like to hear, but God is going to use this plan, so to speak, where the government is going to create a plan in order to, to care for the people. But God's behind it. God's going to use it. God uses governments. God uses things like even taxes and prosperity for good. They can be used for evil as well, but... Get the right guy to oversee the plan, give him a good team to work with, and then you're going to have to really take advantage of these years of prosperity if you want your nation to last the second seven years. Now, if you're thinking about this, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's get to the last part of the chapter. Chapter 41, verses 37 through 57. We have a meteoric rise, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. So everybody is almost like they're bowing down to Joseph here, aren't they? Like he has just convinced everyone in the room. That's what we should do. No one's voting against. He gets a unanimous vote on this proposal. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. That's huge. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set, over, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food in these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to do, to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. What a rise from a forgotten prisoner to the palace all the way up to the top. It's pretty fascinating that Pharaoh puts everything. He puts all of his chips in Joseph's basket, right? Like he just, he goes all in on Joseph. Joseph's my guy. One commentator put it this way, most sailors can steer the ship in fine weather. It requires a real pilot to steal, steer safely through a storm. Pharaoh might, might do well enough at the helm of affairs so long as harvests were copious and the nation was well fed. The first seven years, Pharaoh could handle probably pretty well. But in the presence of the night vision, Pharaoh lost his balance. In presence of a famine, Pharaoh was staggered. There was going to need to be someone with far more integrity and leadership and a relationship with God to guide them through this. And it's fascinating. Joseph's now four for four, isn't he? He is risen to second command back in chapter 37. He gets the father's coat father gives him a special code he becomes kind of second in command to his father then that doesn't work out he gets sold into slavery becomes second in command in Potiphar's house that doesn't work out goes to prison ends up second in command in the prison now he's in the palace he becomes second in command in all the world he's four for four <laughs> because of his character because of his willingness to speak God's word even if it gets him in trouble his willingness to be faithful to God and God puts him in a position where he can affect some good we see a wise stewardship. Joseph is age 30. So when you really think about this in the grand scheme of things, he's been through a lot of suffering in his young life, but he's still like second in command at 30. That's pretty good. I wasn't in charge of anything by the time I was 30. I 
mean, I was barely in charge of my kids. So, but it's fascinating. The age 30 is pretty significant throughout scripture. David was age 30. Ezekiel, when he began his ministry, the priests of Leviticus are supposed to be 30 when they begin their ministry. And guess what? Jesus began his ministry at 30. So just an interesting, um, just an interesting thing there. There's a 20% tax that's supposed to be put on all the people, which could have been higher. This maybe looked crazy to people, right, in the middle of prosperity. And if you can imagine seven years of famine, man, we've had two years dealing with a pandemic. Can you just imagine seven years of something much more severe, much more devastating in, in many ways? And so this is, a, this is a big deal here. Now, it would be interesting, you know, because once you deal with something for seven years, you probably assume that's normal. Like, I think that's what's deceptive about these seven years, is that if you've had seven years of good crops, you probably assume that's going to continue forever, which is what makes the seven years of famine probably so devastating, is you're probably now, your standard of living is now raising up to the level of seven years of plenty. Like, this is just what Egypt does, which then means when the tragedy comes, when the famine comes, you're just that much more devastated, right? So this wisdom to not spend and consume everything you have because you don't know what's coming, right? That's the wisdom of Joseph here. And God gives this, this brilliant plan to Joseph, and Joseph is wise. And can you imagine a whole nation that could go, we could sell this and become more prosperous. We could build more pyramids. We could go, no, we're going to save it. Save it? Like We're like in year five or six of like, this is always going to be this way, Joseph. Why are we continuing to store up grain? This is ridiculous. We should be selling it. We should be making a profit. And Joseph stays the line. He understands what God is saying, and he holds on there. And then you get into seven years of famine. Can you imagine seven years of famine to the point that you maybe begin to think that's normal? And we're going to see how that affects the whole world. There's three parts to Joseph's promotion, a public act of installation, a conferring a new name, a new royal name to make him Egyptian, and the elevation to nobility by marriage. He's married into this really prominent prophet's family. And now we have a danger, right? Because now he's married in, you know, you're not supposed to marry the Canaanite people. Well, he's married an Egyptian. What's, there's a danger here now that now Joseph's heart might be drawn to Egypt, Egypt's gods. But we see Joseph continues to have integrity. In fact, we notice that when he names his two sons, the question now is, are they going to be Egyptian or Hebrew? What is he going to name them? He's in Egypt. Will he name them? Will he assign them an identity that just matches the culture around him? Or will he name them something else? And here's what we see in, in Joseph, is that we see Joseph is going to name them as Hebrews. He's going to name them under God. So even in a foreign land, the naming of his children, I think, is an indication that while he's married a foreign wife, his heart hasn't gone after foreign gods. These are going to be Hebrew boys, not Egyptian boys. And their two names essentially mean forgiven and fruitful. Which you think of what Joseph's been through, right? He has been wronged again and again by his brothers, by Potiphar's wife, by Potiphar, by the cupbearer. He has been wronged over and over again. And yet what he wants to mark his life and his family and his legacy is forgiveness and fruitfulness. These are, not Hebrew, these are Hebrew boys, not Egyptian boys. They will be marked by the one true God. They will be named according to the one true God, and they will mark what, what the legacy of his, of Joseph's life will be, which is forgiveness and fruitfulness, serving others for their own sake. As these names of the sons indicate, Joseph was ever mindful of God's hand upon him throughout all of this. God had preserved him through great hardship, 
And it, there seems to be echoes of the Abrahamic blessing, right? A blessing to all nations. They attempt to change Joseph's name, but it doesn't really stick. That kind of happens to Daniel a little bit later. They try to name him after their own gods, but it just, it doesn't match. The name doesn't fit Joseph. So no one ever really calls him that. <laughs> he really continues to be marked by and known by his Hebrew name. And really he rises from slavery. You know, he's sold into slavery at age 17 to now second in command at age 30. So in 13 years, he spent his 20s. God forming a certain character in him so that when it was time for him to lead and have prominence and when he had maybe the biggest temptation of his life, right? Suffering is one kind of temptation. Prosperity and authority is another kind of temptation. And Joseph continues to have integrity, whether he's in the prison or whether he's in charge. He's not going to use it for his own devices. He's not going to get a pity party. He's going to trust in the Lord. And then it's interesting, he sells their grain back to them. So it's not completely a welfare state. They do have to earn it back, right? So we've stored it up and now we'll sell it back to you. The people need to earn their living. It was not simply a handout. They had to earn it back. Um, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him, right? The whole earth is coming to him. And so now you have a little bit of a minor fulfillment of the Abrahamic pres- um, promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through a seed of Abraham. This temporal salvation from starvation is going to be known to the whole world. One of the descendants of the patriarchs, God's people, is going to be the deliverer from suffering and sin and brokenness. And this work prefigures Christ. So let me just make a few applications. So that's the story. It took us some time to wade our way through it. Let me give you some uh, applications. First, I want to talk just about dreams for just a moment. What do we make of dreams? We hear a lot about dreams. Um, Clearly, God uses dreams in Scripture. He clearly uses dreams in Scripture. Abimelech in in Genesis 20, Jacob in Genesis 28 and 31, Laban in Genesis 31, a Midianite in Judges chapter 7, Solomon in 1 Kings 3, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, Daniel himself in Daniel 7, Joseph in Matthew 1 and 2, Pilate's wife in Matthew 27, And then we hear stories actually in the Muslim world of God, sometimes using dreams to direct people to to messengers of God, to to Christians that are in places like that. I think if you've read the book Insanity of God, I think there's a tremendous story in there about someone who had a dream to go to the specific door, knock on the door, and ask about Jesus. And so the man goes clear over to the city, finds the door, knocks on it, and it's the one Christian in the whole city. And the Muslim man gets pulled in and goes, how do you know that I'm a Christian? Because, you know, I'm not supposed to, I could get myself killed here. Well, I had a dream. But the dream always directs someone to another Christian, right? The dream is never just the gospel itself in the dream. God never circumvents a messenger. And you see that here, that none of these, God never circumvents a messenger, right? God gives Pharaoh a dream so that then Joseph will interpret the dream and God will get the credit, right? God could just give the interpretation in the dream, but the dream is all about getting a person who walks with God to speak the words of God to a person, right? So God could just download dreams to all the people of the world and give the gospel directly and cut messengers out, but that's not his plan. His plan is for us to go and take the gospel and speak it to people. Does that make sense? Dreams never circumvent. They always set up the messenger to, uh, to hear uh, the word of God. Dreams are, are from God always direct to a godly person or to the scriptures themselves. In the Bible, God speaks to unbelievers or pagans in dreams twice as often 
as those of his own people. Uh, so that's sort of just an interesting thing. It's always important to remember that not every dream is a revelation from God. Ecclesiastes 5 tells us a dream comes through much activity. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. So be suspect of dreams. The Bible warns that false prophets use dreams. Deuteronomy 13, Jeremiah 23. So uh, the use of dreams will actually be a mark of false prophets, is the, the misuse of dreams. And ultimately, I think we would boil it all down, don't look for messages from God outside the Bible. And anything that you might think is God arranging certain circumstances in a way to get your attention about something, always test it with scripture and with another Christian, trusted Christian friend, right? Don't seek divine revelation outside of the word. The word is sufficient. The word is authoritative. And so I think that's about all I can say about dreams. Uh, I want to look at just four quick categories with you. God, man, Jesus, and response. What does this passage tell us about God? You might be able to think of a bunch of them. Let me just throw out a few. First, God is sovereign over all things. You see that? Who is sovereign over Egypt? Pharaoh? Not Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not sovereign over Egypt. God is sovereign. God is even sovereign over the future. He can tell you there's going to be seven years and then something else for seven years. God is sovereign over time. And God is active and involved in all the little things. We see that, that God is dealing not just on the macro scale of what will happen in seven-year increments, when crops will grow and when they won't, but he also knows exactly how to get Pharaoh's attention. He knows exactly how to put a cupbearer in just the right spot and get accused of just the right thing so that he would end up in the jail at just the right time so that the man, the, the prisoner of the guard, would have just the right trust in a man who would then be there on the day that he has a bad dream and then would give the right interpretation, which would come true. And so, so God is playing all of these chess moves. And so he's sovereign not just in the big ways, but he's sovereign in all the little ways. And he's, put, he's always been maneuvering Joseph to exactly the right spot in ways that maybe Joseph didn't even know. And so God is sovereign about over all things and active and involved in all the little ways. Another thing we learn about God in this is that God is leading world events to bring about a family reunion. The family has been fractured because of sin. Joseph is separated from his brothers. And God is working world events like famines, worldwide famines in order to unite one little tiny family. God is working all things for the good of his people. World events. We can take the Russian invasion of Ukraine and believe that God is working things, situations for the good of his people that we might not be able to see right now. Famines are bad, wars are bad. And yet we have a God who is intricately weaving all of these things in such a way that humans will take action and that God's people will ultimately be blessed in the long run. God is working a family reunion. God is working all things, even worldwide events, to bring a family, to reunite uh, one brother with his brothers, to bring a family back together. What does this say about humanity, about man? One, it tells us that man is not in control of his life or his destiny. Even the great Pharaoh, with all of his resources, with all of his magic books, with all of his good advisors, with all of that, still a dream. A dream unsettles and changes his entire destiny. Man is not ultimately control of his life. And no matter what Pharaoh does, there's no way that he can bring about blessing or avoid cursing. There is nothing in that. 
that he can do in and of himself to secure his own future, which is true for us too. There's nothing we can do to secure our own future. We work so hard <laughs> to make sure that we, our future is secure and safe and strong, and man, we are not in control. But the fact that God is in control doesn't mean that we're passively resigned. Some people would say that because God is sovereign, man can't do anything or shouldn't do anything, and that's not true. Joseph understands that God's sovereignty over these next 14 years means they should take action. They should take action. The fact that God is in control of all things means that they should get moving. They should get to work. So God's sovereignty and man's agency are not in conflict. In fact, God's sovereignty should promote right godly activity. So it's not just you're resigned to seven years of good years and then eh, just enjoy it because then it's going to be really bad after that. No, take action. God is giving you an opportunity here. So the fact that God is totally sovereign over all things does not mean that man doesn't have agency and shouldn't respond wisely. We also see with man that authority is always to be utilized for the well-being and flourishing of others, right? That's what Joseph's plan is. Use your authority, Pharaoh, to establish someone who will do what is good for the people, even if the people don't understand it's good yet, right? Put someone in charge who won't leverage the prosperity for his own name, but will leverage the prosperity for the good of the people he leads, which means that it's good to have public servants, right? It's good. <laughs> Government can be a good thing, and people that serve in places of official authority are to be good. But if they begin to serve themselves, then it becomes very destructive, right? We see that. But Joseph is going to be the public servant who does what is hard, does what people don't understand for their own good. And that whatever level of authority you might have, maybe you lead a business, maybe you have people that work for you, maybe you lead a family, maybe your authority is given to you by God for the blessing of those that you lead to take what resources you have and make things better for them. So here's what we have. We have godly authority. Joseph stands out because he has godly authority. 2 Samuel 23 says this. <clears throat> when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. So influence and authority are actually a good thing. They're a good God-given gift when they're used for the sake of those that are, that are following, that are under that leadership. So if you have any leadership at all, leverage it in this way to be a public servant. All vocations are to be honored, if they're not tied up with sin, obviously, and all vocations are to be leveraged for the benefit of others, right? That's what Joseph's call is. Put someone in authority who will work for the good of the people who will sacrifice himself and do the wise, hard things so that these people's lives may be saved. So Joseph gives a great example of what it looks like to lead in a godly way and to do the hard things, to be persuasive and to have character and to not use his influence for himself, but to use it for others. What does this say about Jesus? We see Jesus wield this kind of authority, right? Matthew 20, verses 27 through 28. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is what Joseph's going to do. He's going to spend the next 14 years of his life blessing a nation that imprisoned him, right? And Jesus is going to come, and he's going to use his authority not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for the people who will put him to death, right? 
Jesus is this perfect model of leadership. In fact, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So when Jesus says, when I rise and I, I am in second in command in, in the heavens, right? When I'm overseeing the whole world, I will have subjects, you, you, my people. And you're going to go and you're going to go and be a blessing to all the nations. You're going to go and make disciples for their good. You're going to teach them about the good ways of God. You're going to be dispensers of grace. You're going to be ministers of reconciliation. The fact that you have been saved by God and given an authority under God to be his messengers in the world means that you do it in service to others. Be like Joseph and use the God-given privilege of being in a relationship, being ambassador of God, to leverage that so that people might come to know God, come to know him. That's what Jesus did. That's what he called us to do. And we see that in Joseph, a model of godly authority, a willingness to serve, a willingness to lay down your life for another. And then how do we respond in obedient faith? We are to be faithful where we are. You notice that with Joseph? Be faithful where you are. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. Seems like it doesn't work out. Faithfulness in prosperity for Joseph might be waiting for the day when the other shoe drops, right? Faithfulness might be, let me store up and not consume all of my possessions because I might there might be a kingdom need for them on the other side. Here's another thing, just to, an obedient response to this is look to serve whoever is in front of you. Imagine if Joseph just walked by those two cupbearer and the baker. If he didn't take an interest in their well-being, there might not have been a conversation about the dreams. But because he was serving the people in front of him, that was God's mechanism, his serving of these prisoners. Whether prisoner or pharaoh, serve the person in front of you. Always give glory and credit to God for what you are able to do. We see that in Joseph. He gives credit to God. No, 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 I don't do this. Don't deify me. God is the one who does this. Another response is speak the truth of God straightforwardly and clearly regardless of the response. That would have been a tough, these would have been tough words to speak. To one man, you're saying, in three days, you're going to be restored. That's good news. That's an easy message to preach. The other one is, sorry, bro, you're going to be dead in three days. It's tough to preach both there's a temptation to only want to preach the message of grace and not preach the message of judgment, right? There's always a temptation to stand before Pharaoh and you know what? I'm just going to talk about the good days that are coming. The seven years of plenty, it's going to be great. Don't worry about those others. But to preach both good news and bad news, right? And that's what we're called when we share the gospel is that every person needs to hear the hard news that they're under the judgment of God. They need to know that. But there's good news. So to preach both the good and the bad news, regardless of the consequences, Joseph is willing to just speak for God without modifying it, without changing it. He speaks the truth of God, whether that's to prisoners or whether that's to Pharaoh himself. He's going to speak the words that God gives him to speak. Steward what you have for the sake of the kingdom. We see that there. Let's not waste the prosperity that God has given us. And then ultimately look past Joseph to King Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate faithful one. He's the ultimate servant. He's the one who gives all glory to the Father. He is the one who spoke the word of God with authority. He's the one who gave his life for the sake of others and the kingdom. He's the one who looks guilty prisoners like you and me and says you will be free. 
you will be forgiven. You will be restored and you will serve the king. Because Jesus, when he's crucified, he's got two criminals on either side, right? One will remain in his condemnation. The other will cry out, remember me when I'm in your kingdom. And one is forgiven and one is condemned. And Joseph, likewise, was between two prisoners, right? And he had a message from God that you, you will be, you will be remembered, you will be restored, and you will be. There's two destinies for every human being, which is judgment under the king or grace from the king. And that's all bound up in Jesus Christ, what we do with Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate, he's the ultimate end that all of this is driving to. So here we have another gospel pattern in front of us. Resurrection, ascension, commission, proclamation, salvation, and the blessing of all nations through one righteous man, which is ultimately a pattern that's being set up here that will be fulfilled and magnified in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for these stories here, this, uh, this rags to riches, this prison to palace, um, this underdog story of someone who is forgotten by the world, yet living so faithfully, and yet used by you to change the world, uh, to save the world. And so, God, we, we see Christ in this story. We see a, a picture and a pattern that will come later. And, God, we see so many um, ways that we can learn from Joseph. We can learn from his godliness, his trust in you, his how he interacts with other people, how he wields authority. And, God, I pray that we would do the same, that we would learn these lessons apply them to our lives and to the spheres of influence that we have. But ultimately, God, beyond, beyond all that, help us look to Christ, who is the perfect leader, who is the perfect servant, who is the perfect king, and help us to bow our knee. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.